0: the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution granted American women the right to vote. Two days later, a meeting occurred that would be the precursor to the now-famous September 17, 1920 meeting in Ralph Hayes' Huttmobile Auto Showroom to officially form what is now the NFL. These dates, two days apart on the calendar, converge for the topic of this week's episode. This time we talk about the National Women's Football League.
2: Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean,
0: and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. Great Scott. This time just up the DeLorean. The date is August 26, 1970. And we're standing on New York City's Fifth Avenue, a full 50 years later after the passage of the 19th Amendment. And according to Time Magazine, we're here witnessing 50,000 feminists parading with linked arms, blocking the major thoroughfare during rush hour. They were here because women's rights and equality for many things did not evolve enough over the previous 50 years after that 19th Amendment was issued. And even that, obviously, before then, too. They needed to take a stand, or a walk if you will. The same can be said about the women discussed in this week's episode covering the National Women's Football League. We use a recently released book and I was able to talk to the authors for this interview. The book is called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. The authors are Brittany De La Cretes and Lindsay DeColangelo. Brittany is a freelance writer who focuses on the intersection of sports and gender. Lindsay writes about women's college basketball and the WNBA. They got together, and they wrote a book about the National Women's Football League. Like I said, it's called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Now in this interview, we're going to get into some topics that really generally are not necessarily covered on this podcast. However, it is very important that we continue to have these discussions even though this topic covers way back in the late 60s through the early 80s. I mean, you're even going to hear a few times where I say, "Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to lead this one in or not. But then, you know what? I decided it's important to have these discussions. These open, uncomfortable, maybe make you feel embarrassed, get red in the face or whatever, those types of conversations. So this is mostly a raw, uncut version of our conversation. Well, I mean, most of my shows really are that way. But then again, it's mostly the editing for flow of the show. But this is probably the one where I said the most. Oh, we'll cut that one out. Or I'm not sure if I'm going to leave it in there. Again, no matter. I think it is best that we move forward and get into the interview with Brittany and Lindsay covering Hail Mary, the rise and fall of the National Women's Football League. (laughs) We got the DeLorean. We're going to go back in time. Let's start this whole thing off. Let's go back to kind of... More the inception of the concepts. We're going to go back to 1967. This is the year of the first Super Bowl. the AFL and the NFL had just merged. Not, not too long before then, or actually they're in the, still in the process of merging at that time, but there's something else we brought you here to talk about this brain child, I guess we'll call it maybe if, if that's the best way of Sid Friedman and then what results in the national women's football league. So let's go back there and maybe Lindsay, go ahead and start off. Like what was going on at that time? As far as our topic here.
2: Um, so women's football was sort of catching on as like this curiosity, um, throughout history, since football was invented, women have been trying to play in different aspects, whether at, um, schools or just getting together and having games or forming their own teams. And, you know, there was just this sort of momentum that built up to the 1960s when, uh, Sid Friedman, who was a promoter, uh, from Cleveland, Ohio, And, um, he was looking for like the next big act to kind of get behind. He had done beauty pageants and things like that. And, um, was just looking to make some money. And he sort of honed in on, um, women's football and decided to form a a team, his own team in much in the same vein as the Harlem Globetrotters and wanted to have them go around to play different men's teams, um, around the rust belt area. And he did. He put out um, a call for in the newspapers for women to come try out, and said it was like the serious thing. He wanted people to know he was, you know, he was serious about this venture. And uh, lots of the lots of reporters reported on it because it was like this crazy idea for this time period in 1967. But a bunch of women came out, and he formed a team, and that he—that's what he did. He started taking them around the Rust Belt area and having them play men's teams, and. They were actually, they could hold their own. Um, And he decided to start some other women's teams and have them play each other. And that's sort of how the ball got rolling in that um, time period for women in football.
0: Now, I don't know if this has anything, if this season, if it matters. Was Sid Friedman in your research, did you ever find out if he was related to Benny Friedman, the pro, pro football Hall of Fame quarterback?
2: That's a good question. I never... Found any connection between him and um, he did? He was. It was reported that he was a um, served as an agent for a former um, Major League Baseball player and um, former football NFL player. But I don't remember coming across anything like that.
0: Okay, yeah, I was just curious because it, when I saw the name Sid Friedman Cleveland, I, I was like, wait a second, I'm pretty sure Benny Friedman was from Cleveland too. And it just kind of you know, I went down this little rabbit hole. I didn't find anything that <laughs> that that connected the two. But so we we have this, and, and like you said, it was more of uh in the vein of Globetrotters. Were the Globetrotters around for quite some time during this time frame or the the, the
2: basketball team, yeah, they um they had been They had been, you know, the Gold trotters have like a long history, and they they had he saw what they were able to do in basketball and wanted to do the same thing for women when it came to football, like the same idea of having this troop of just for entertainment, um, for people to come and enjoy enjoy the, the show, I guess, and um, that was his that was his main idea.
0: So again, the reason why we have you both on in the book. His, his intent was not for necessarily a league at that time. It was more for the second act, halftime show or something like that. Then where does the National Women's Football League, when does it actually get formed and where does it come in to be?
1: Yeah, so the what, well, what happened was these women were playing under Sid Friedman um, and there were some other independent franchises that had formed around the country as well. And some of the women who were playing under Sid Friedman were getting frustrated. They felt like he was exploitative or didn't take them as seriously as they took themselves. Um, He was known to do things like send hustler photographers to practice um, and things like that. Anything that he thought might garner some sort of publicity um, for the teams. And so some of the teams started to actually leave from under Friedman's ownership um, as well. And so in 1974, a few of the teams that had been Friedman's left and joined some of these independent outlets. Um, and that's when the NWFL started. The kind of the real, like, it was the brainchild of um, mostly a man named Bob Matthews who owned the Los Angeles Dandelions. Mm-hmm. Um, his Brothers owned uh, the Dallas Blue Bonnets. And so their team joined as well. And um, Bill Stout, who was the coach and one of the owners of the Toledo Troopers, who had formerly been one of Friedman's teams, um, also was really involved in that process. And, you know, the, the Troopers are the best team and the winningest team in pro football history, men's or women's. And the reason that they left Sid Friedman was that he asked them to throw games um, because he, they were beating his, uh, his team so badly um, and they were having none of it. And, you know, he retaliated against them by not letting them play any of his teams. And so they were very happy when a new league formed and they you know were able to have a schedule again.
0: Yeah, I didn't know about the troopers until I started researching for this interview. I mean, how many games in a row or whatever it was, was the record?
1: So the exact record over nine seasons is disputed. It's because this league did not keep statistics as well as one would hope, but it's somewhere in the vein of, of like 64 and five over nine seasons. They played five full seasons before they ever lost a game. The first game that they lost was their first game of their sixth season in 1976.
0: <laughs> uh, the, the, so the listener of this show already knows what I'm about to say, but and I kind of alluded to this with you, Lindsay. I'm a Lions fan, so this is totally opposite <laughs> of what what I, uh, I've experienced in my life ever since I've been on this planet. I can't imagine having that many wins in a row. And then also with that type of a record, I mean, what was it that separated them from their competition?
1: There's a couple things. I think that the troopers had a coach who was really committed to them from day one, Bill Stout. He um, really took this seriously and did not want players who didn't feel the same way on his team and they trained incredibly hard many days a week and again these these women were working full-time jobs um, because they're not really getting you know money so part of it is the coaching part of it is going to be luck because there's not a draft there's nothing that is going to spread talent around and so these teams are Performing because there's an ad in the paper, there's word of mouth, people are showing up. So some of it is going to be luck based on the pool of players that show up. And the other part of it is a woman named Linda Jefferson who um, is, was <laughs> she's alive, but she does not play football anymore. She was a halfback um, and considered to be the best player in the league. She retired with more touchdowns than Walter Payton, Jim Brown, or OJ Simpson. Um, her stats are ridiculous and, um, she would, by the way, disagree with me saying this, she would say that she was only as good as she was because her line got the blocks and that all of the success is due to the other people on the team, but her stats really cannot be denied. And once she was off, nobody could catch her. And so, uh, Linda Jefferson is another really big part of that team's success, um, as well.
0: I, I love it when a running back actually says it that way has, I mean, sure. It's like the go-to move. You get the, I mean, I know you're from the Boston area. So right, Brittany. Yeah. So the Bella and the whole, we got this. And there was, you know, the line didn't do their job, blah, blah, blah. But the, uh, when they truly mean it and you could tell, you know, that makes a big difference. So I go back to the listener of the show at nauseam about Barry Sanders being my favorite player, but like he, he would get to the end zone and he would hand the ball to the ref versus like making some kind of, you know, Celebrated dance or whatever, uh, you alluded to, they had full-time jobs while they were playing. Like, did they have, were there stories of my boss gave me a hard time when I had to travel, so it was difficult and I, like, I got fired for it and they committed to the team or any of those kinds of stories?
2: I didn't come across any of those kinds of stories. The games were always mostly on the weekends. So they would work all week and then, you know, travel on the weekends and also practices were at, at night after work, they most of the players worked full days and then showed up at practice at, at six and would play, you know, practice for a couple hours and then go home, go to bed, wake up, you know, and do it again the next day. So um, I think a lot of the teams and coaches tried to work with the players full-time job schedules, you know, you had to.
1: I know that the quarterback of the Oklahoma city dolls, Jan Hines, she was part of the first uh, softball team uh, at university of Oklahoma under title IX, And they, her, they meaning the school and her coaches actually tried to tell her she couldn't play football. Um, And she said that she wouldn't. Um, There was no scholarships. And at the time, like it, you know, it was, different. And she said, I will commit that if there's ever a conflict with a game, I will show up to your game. But other than that, like my games and practices are at different times than my practices for this team. And so she refused, but they did ask her to quit playing football.
0: Huh? Yeah. Because we're talking, you, you just mentioned like, Three cities with I'm not walking down the road to go pick up to these cities. That's why I was curious about you know the distance and the travel and everything. I mean, I guess this is what the, the early mid-70s. So, yeah, commercial flights were were more readily available than it would have been back when the NFL had started in the 20s and everything. Uh with that being said, I mean, let's get into that. That you, you discussed a little bit of, of Title IX and then the 70s. Like, why was this? This is a talking point the publicist said. Why was the seventies the perfect time for possibly starting this league?
2: I think it was a combination of things and both Brittany and I could speak to different aspects of this, but, um, obviously title IX was a part of that. You know, it opened up the door for women to finally participate in organized sports. Um, and a lot of these players were in college. I mean, the age range was from 18 years old or 17, even to 40. So you had women who were in, you know, had families and were were working full time or just stay at home moms. And then you had college students and, and others who were just out into the workforce, but, and the players in college were finally able to play sports and um, they just wanted to get their hands on any type of sport they could play. So when they saw an announcement in the paper for football or heard from a friend that, there a football there were a football team was forming, they jumped at the chance. You know, imagine not to get to you're an athlete and you're not able to do what you see, say, your brothers or friends or boyfriends or whatever are doing. You finally get that opportunity, you're gonna jump at the chance. So that's definitely played um played a part in that. Um and also I think um just, you saw what was happening, you know, around the sport, women's sports landscape um, especially on the tennis side of things where women were, Billie Jean King was fighting for um, equal pay, you know, and there was this um, feminist movement happening, which Brittany can speak more on. Um, so yeah, it was a combination of things.
0: Yeah. I, so I'm sorry, Brittany. I'm going to, well, I want you to follow up with that with the Billie Jean King. So I, I'm, 36, 37, I was born in 85. So I'm not, not like I was there when this occurred and I, I had not known enough about the history of it. I didn't realize that everything that was involved there, like what you just said with equal pay and other things involved other than a, a man tennis player playing against a woman tennis player. So maybe explain to me what all revolved around that first and then get into that.
1: The women's liberation movement was happening at this time as well. And Billie Jean King also was defeated Bobby Riggs in battle of the sexes. And those two things were not unrelated. Billie Jean King did a lot for women's tennis and one of, her biggest fights was around equal pay and equal recognition. She did things like start women's sports magazine because she didn't see enough women that were in sports illustrated. And so she started her own magazine to try to even, you know, the field in that way. And that magazine actually had two different NWFL players on the cover. So you know, her magazine actually helped, um, raise, The profile of this league as well Um, in, you know, the battle of the sexes that was about equal pay and equal recognition um, that 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 match occurred. And so that context also was really related to women's liberation and the, the second wave feminist movement that was happening at the time. Most of the players did not necessarily identify with or engage with the women's liberation movement. It wasn't on most of their radars. And if it was, it was not something that felt particularly applicable to them. Um, Some of them, yes, but the majority of them told us, no, no. But I think you still can't remove the context of that this was the undercurrent in society in which women were breaking barriers. They were doing things that they'd never been allowed to do. And that movement, just by nature of existing, kind of created this this permission for women to say, I'm going to do whatever I want, even if it's not very obviously connected in their minds. And so you know, we talk a little bit in this book about the players as unwitting activists, and that's you know what we mean by that, which is you don't have to be participating in a march with you know a you know a picketing or something in order to be part of societal change. All you really have to do is break the rules and do what the you know what you're told you're not supposed to, and that is absolutely one thing that these players did together. And I think that the kind of social atmosphere at the time allowed for that to happen.
0: Did they? Say that they tried to stay away from it from, because they're already, like you said, break, breaking down the barriers, doing that, you know, breaking the rules because of they were fear of the extra scrutiny, or was it just a fact of we didn't happen to be part of it?
1: There's a lot of different reasons, I think, that these players did or did not connect with um, this movement at the time. The ones that did tended to be the players who went to college and had access to some of the feminist theory and were more engaged with it on that level. A lot of the players were a little bit older um, and they were already in the workforce or they were in trades working these blue collar jobs. Um, and I I think that they just didn't really have time to get it real like, engaged in this you know theory um in their minds they already were breaking barriers and doing things that women shouldn't do a lot of them like some of them were the only woman on their job and they were for their entire careers um a lot of the women were gay and that was an issue within the the women's lib movement itself um was whether lesbians should be included um and that was you know an intercommunity fight that was happening and so on top of that feeling like the movement wasn't for them because a lot of the focus at the time was on like childcare and women being allowed to work outside the home and for lesbian women they're like well I don't have a kid I don't have a male partner who is in my home like these dynamics just don't apply to my life and so on that level too I think they've kind of had already divested from these systems that um, the movement was trying to address. And so for a variety of reasons, the women, you know, may or may not have identified with the actual movement itself, because I think, you know, you think about that movement and the the public face of it was Gloria Steinem in a lot of ways to a lot of people. And she was a, a white, you know, as far as I know, straight woman who was fighting for things that impacted mostly white, middle class and upper class straight women. And so that didn't necessarily feel applicable to a lot of the women in the league.
0: Now, this is kind of sidetracking, it, but you said something in the middle there about the women that went to college who were, I guess we'll use the word exposed to this theory. I To me, it, I mean, maybe this is okay, what, 40, 50, however many years later, but that seems wildly to have to say that it's a theory for, for people to have the same rights just seems weird in my mind but I understand that it's still And both of you I understand would be still struggling with things like that today have you had negative criticism I guess we'll call it from this book coming out at all that I was just curious because and it is possible and I don't know if I'm going to keep this in the recording or not but I I if I lose one or two listeners from this because they don't fall in line with the type of conversation I'm having, because obviously most of my show has been about the NFL. and well, I didn't talk to you about that, Brittany, I guess, at the beginning of this. So it's a different style of topic, we'll say. And and I'm curious. My wife and I had this conversation before I told her I wanted to talk about different kind of social type of aspects. And I'm curious if I am going to lose a listener or to whatever from having this conversation, you know, for someone that maybe is ignorant or un, uneducated, whatever word you want to use, I don't want to call my listeners <laughs> idiots, but you know what I mean. So I'm not gonna probably put that in the recording. I just was curious, this is my own curiosity if, if you've received any blowback, because you know people can be very ignorant on social media when it comes to that type of stuff.
1: Yeah, no, not really. I will say as like an aside at one point, if I don't know because I missed you and Lindsay chatting before but if you do mostly focus on the NFL at some point, we can talk about the many ties between the two leagues. Cause there are quite a few, if that's, if that's what your listeners are usually like. Yeah,
0: we might, how. I honestly, I have like a bunch of like little like notes on the side over here where I got into, I don't know where this whole thing we're at, what Great. I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to, I told, and I told my wife and I were talking about it and like, you know, I shouldn't be nervous about this type of conversation, but naturally growing up in like a middle Class, I am ai am a I'm a middle-aged white dude, right? So I had privileges that I probably shouldn't have had in the community that is in, in the middle of like nowhere type of thing. So a lot of these topics don't get brought up as much. And as I discuss them, you know, it's naturally for me to want to in the back of my mind be guarded to oh, should I bring that up? Should I not ask that question and stuff? So if I do say anything ahead of time, I even asked Lindsay, you know, I'm like, I, I asked about for how how you the pronouns they them. I I don't know how to answer that sometimes when people say, well, let me ask you that. This is I'm recording. I'm sorry. What, what when, when somebody <laughs> Lindsay said back there laughing. <laughs> so let me, let me ask you that question. Like, cause like, I want to be very respectful about like, what would be if someone asked you, like, why, why do you recognize as they, them versus she, she or his or her or anything like that? What would be your answer?
1: Because I'm non-binary um, I'm a non-binary trans person and that's my, my gender identity.
0: Okay. And, and and again, I'm sorry if I'm asking (laughs) questions. Yeah. I'm like, I, uh, I, I've been known to be a dude that sometimes last questions. I'm curious and I don't want to (laughs) be disrespectful for anything. So that some people look at me like, why the hell did you just ask that question? We're just, no, no, uh, no. Thank (laughs) you
1: for asking.
0: (laughs) But anyway, so I have no idea where we were. I know one thing I wanted (laughs) to get into is the salary set. Yeah. Salaries and the wide gap. I was telling Lindsay at the beginning here, you know, so, Understandably so. Her and I just discussed about the uh, the supply and demand nature, but then, well, if you have media coverage, maybe you get more demand because someone has to be told about it before they're even able to want to consume this product type of thing. So I looked it up and I was like, wow, even nowadays, like I expected, unfortunately, a gap, but not to the degree that there was. So let's get into, you said that they're working women. They have full-time jobs or trying to make they're trying to make a living, but they're still trying to play this game that they love. What was it like for them as far from a salary perspective?
2: You can't really call it a salary. I mean, they got 25. The promise was $25 per game before taxes. Um, And while some teams had owners who could fund that and travel expenses and equipment and all that other teams, had owners who couldn't afford that. And also there were teams that were were formed by the players themselves and run by the players themselves and um, funded through, um, you know, making T-shirts and bumper stickers and and doing car washes and things of that nature to just make ends meet to keep the team afloat. And they didn't get a salary at all. So really, these women played for the love of the game. You know, as cliche as that may sound, it was true.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, they would have played it regardless. Well, I mean, like you said, the salaries might have been promised, but even if you don't get the salary, uh, the part about, and I'm now I'm blinking again, Brittany, you said we got to get into something. Oh, the NFL, that's what it was. So did they have any ties to say the NFL leagues or professional sports in other cities that were already established?
1: That. Ties that the teams had to the NFL leagues were tenuous. Um, In Dallas, the Blue Bonnets actually played in Texas stadium. So they shared a venue with the Cowboys. Um, And there was some publicity done. There was a pep rally with both teams. There was a, there's a promotional image in the paper of a former Cowboys player buying a ticket to a Blue Bonnets game. But other than that, there was no financial support. The, you know, as far as we know, no players ever actually came to the games or anything like that. Um, And in Detroit, the demons played in hand-me-down lions uniforms actually. Um, So they were named the demons. They looked like the lions. If the lions were swimming in their, their jerseys because they were too big (laughs) for most of the women. Um, But other than that, of the the donation of the uniforms, we couldn't find any, like, concrete support. Um, But, I mean, it's interesting because for the players themselves that were on the teams that were even loosely associated with the NFL team in those small ways, they, like, among themselves kind of called themselves the sister team of the NFL team. But um, from, like, a concrete, actual, real perspective, that there wasn't any like formal support.
0: Well, Lindsay, you follow you you follow the WNBA and and write about that pretty consistently, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Nowadays, that's, that's kind of my beat.
0: That's your beat. Uh, that's that's my yeah. thing.
2: So that's my thing.
0: They follow. Don't they have some? Uh, was it okay, correlations between the the cities and the teams in there though?
2: You mean as far as the NBA goes? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously they don't have it. Th- there's 12 teams and there's, they don't have a a part, like, I don't want to say partner team, but uh, I guess we'll use the the opposite, like a brother team Mm -hmm. (laughs) in every city, but the ones that do, they are very supportive of each other, but it's more the players than the organizations themselves. I mean, the players are the ones who really support each other and, you know, you'll have NBA players go to WNBA games and vice versa. And, you know there's a mutual respect there that exists now that's um that's really cool to see
0: so that is going to lead me into i was going to discuss something about a uh okay when i was growing up i heard of reggie miller's sister was better than him and going mm-hmm. back to like i told you growing up where she i was she was <laughs> in, 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 in 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 i'm not when at the time, and this is where I think hopefully I've grown as an individual at the time, when I was growing up where I am in the mid nineties, wherever it was, I was like, as a kid, I don't, I don't know how old I was. I was like, that can't be, that's impossible. You know, like that's the natural way that we were taught as we were growing up through many things, you know, the whole, uh, just even movies shows your parents and things like that. But then I had a story too, where there's a player, Detroit lions player and I. I remember Herman Moore. I don't know if you've ever even heard of this name, being a a Buffalo Bills fan or not. So Herman Moore. Okay, so same thing. When I was growing up, Herman Moore was one of my favorite players. I was told that his wife was actually a better athlete than he was too. Same thing. I was in my mind had it wrong. Well, that's impossible type of thing. So with that preface, and as we shift forward twenty years, whatever it is, that I understand that I was a little ignorant. Did they have that same kind of? criticism, uh, we'll use that word as it criticism, sexism, scrutinized harassment type of deal with the league of oh, the they might be this little, here's your little brother's league and here's your little sister's league. Uh, they're just going to stay over there. Was it talked about that way in your research?
2: I mean, yeah, the, the NWFL, the way it was covered by the media was, I mean, they're really gross examples of um, sexism and um, misogyny in the way they were covered, um, and viewed, um, whether it was an art, a satirical column or, um, an editorial cartoon, you know, we found horrendous examples and very few, very few people who covered them as they were athletes, um, unfortunately. And, you know, it was a sign of the times, um, of course, but, um, yeah, they, they did not get a lot of respect.
0: And that, Oh, go ahead, Brittany. You're about to say something. I looked like, you no, know? <laughs> you look like, you're like, I got to jump in here. I got to say something about this. Cause it made me think about something because the other thing I wanted to bring up too. And again, I don't know how much of this I'm going to put in my show. Cause I might, I, I don't <laughs> sound the wrong way, but when I was in high school, I'll tell you what we played. So I played football in high, high school and we had a female kicker on the other team. And I'll how do I wear this? You can imagine the comments that were made inside the locker room, and unfortunately, well, sure. yeah, not just by the players, but even by our coaches. Um, you know, make sure in, in not just the bad comments of. I mean, it was bad indirectly of saying, you know, make sure, okay, she's going to kick the ball, just don't touch her, don't hit her, all you know, that kind of thing. You don't want to be the person that injures a female player. So, with that being said, crossing over here, it begs the question. Was there ever conversation back then of, like you said, women can't play with men and that kind of thing of, okay, well, what about can men play in a women's league type of thing? Maybe now the WNBA, NBA, like, do you ever get those types of conversations of if a woman wants to be in a men's league, can a men's league be a men be in a women's league type of thing?
2: If I frame that right. That wasn't their (laughs) goal. You know, they didn't none of these players wanted to play in the NFL. They wanted to have a league of their own, you know, and play in that and exist and enjoy the sport and compete against each other. They didn't want to, you know, cross over. And the reason you you see kicker, female kickers on men's teams at the high school or college level. And in other non, you know, mostly non-contact positions is because there's no, where else are they going to play? There's no women's tackle football, high school teams. There's no college teams for them to join. After youth football, there's nothing. So what are they supposed to do? You know, people get mad because you have women playing on college teams and, and instead of, you know, enjoying the fact that they're maybe setting records when they do and they kick a field goal for the first time or, you know, do something like that. They, people get mad, but where else are they supposed to play? You know, there's no other option. So that's why you see, you know, some women who have played in, in the um, high school and college level, there are women semi-pro leagues that exist today and um, there's that option, but, you know, to have the, that growth and to become better players before they get to that
1: option, there's no,
2: there's not, there's nothing.
1: So. Yeah. I, I think that a really important point there is that there often is a difference, a gap between, I don't want to use the word quality, but when we talk about what watching an NWFL team was like, a lot of them compared themselves to maybe a really good high school football team. And so if somebody comes expecting a pro game and that's what they see on the field, maybe they're going to be disappointed, but that erases Completely the fact that the women never had, and there's no infrastructure, there's no pipeline for these women to learn the game, right? So, by the time men are playing the game, they have been instructed in how to play since the time they were kids and playing Pop Warner or whatever it is. And then they move up to, you know, junior high and high school football and they play in college and they get to the pros and they've been playing their entire lives these women don't have that opportunity. So they're picking up the game as an adult. And so it's not it's, you know, not accurate when people say, well, this is proof that women aren't as good as football as men are, because look at this game. It's not the same as an NFL game, but that ignores the fact that the women haven't had the same investment and opportunities. So it's not actually a skill gap. It's an investment gap It's and it's an access to resources gap. And so if you provided the same level of training and opportunities to men and women you would see a much more comparable product as you do with some of the, the women's teams currently who have players that have been playing for a very long time. The quality of the game is very, very high.
0: So, okay. So I have a question then, what do we need to do as a society to prevent those previous two questions that I just had? And does hail Mary, the framework, maybe as one of the starting points work? I, the question was basically, I, you know, the the uh, the perception that women can't play on the same level as men like how do we change how do we change that perception like if from a societal perspective?
1: I think we just need to give women opportunities to play and you can see what happens when they have them um you can look to you know something like the WNBA or the NWSL, and see what has happened when there's been investment in a league and, um, you know, much more resources for them to play. But I will say this book, I mean, part of the reason we wrote it was we wanted to disprove that, right? There's a reason that when you read our book, you are dropped directly basically into gameplay. This book opens in the middle of this like pretty fierce rivalry And that was a really intentional decision. We wanted the readers to understand upfront that these were football players. And we never wanted the fact that the women could play football to be in question. And so when you lead with that and you meet them in a game environment and they're playing football from day one, you know, from page one, you, you never have to question whether they were really football players. And so even just the way that we framed our story was to to counteract any questions about yeah but could they really play because you know they can because we showed you from the beginning
0: so it's almost like a marvel movie where you get the action right away and then you're already in trance or engulfed in the story and if you're even a marvel fan i don't know but that's what they do they like you know that if it's a movie you're going to be you know seen that's going to get you understanding what's going on a little bit and then the story comes after but Maybe not a great analogy, because like you said, you, your perspective was to make sure that we understand that this is a a legitimate sport, a legitimate league that is so that, that they can play and then move down with maybe the history. And let's get first into maybe the, the, the demise of the league, like how long it lasted. And then I have a DeLorean question for you.
1: The demise. So the league, we estimate that it lasted 14 seasons and the last game was played in 1988. I will say that the 80s were not a great time for this league. Uh, Definitely not the best um, quality that the league had. Um, At that point, the players really were just kind of scraping by and one team was folding and kind of popping up in a different city, but with the same players as a different team, there were not really many more than like three-ish teams in the league in any given season at that point. Um, the heyday of the league was, we say, uh, 74 um, until about 1979, which is by that point, most of the best teams in the league had folded, including the Los Angeles Dandelions, the Oklahoma City Dolls and the Toledo Troopers. And, um, that was, you know, for a variety of reasons, most of them financial, um, there was just no way these are not, we think of NFL teams being bankrolled by like, you know, billionaires who have all of this money to like sink into a team, even when they're losing, even if no one's showing up. And this was just not the case. The men who started these NWFL teams, if they had owners, um, did not have that kind of money, you know, they thought they were going to invest for a few seasons and eventually the teams would pay for themselves. And unfortunately, that's just not how sports leagues go. It usually takes at least 10 years for a franchise to become profitable um, if it ever does. And so that just was not a realistic goal. And there was only so long, there's only so long you can keep a league going on like grit and like desire to play.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it does take a long time to be able to get it going. And even some of the, so some of the leagues out there, they may have a couple teams that are maybe not profitable, but for the. The whole benefit of the league, maybe they come in, they swoop in, and that's been throughout time of leagues where they've had certain owners will maybe consume a team or they'll do something where they'll help out financially to keep the whole league afloat because they're, they're only as good as the weakest link, you know, all those kinds of Mm. cliches and things like that. So speaking of a cliche, boom, I've got this DeLorean right here. It even lights up if the battery's still in there. Oh yeah. We're lighting up. We're (laughs) back to the future. We're going doc Brown, Marty McFly style. I'll ask Lindsay first. You can go back to all of these interviews and stories that you've found and you've uncovered from the book Hail Mary. If you could go to one moment and relive that moment, what would it be?
2: Uh, wow, that's quite the question.
1: <laughs> that's relive why we have moment.
2: editing. <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, it would be my interaction with a player named Rose Lowe who played for the LA Dandelions and who ended up supplying us with a lot of documents and uh, memorabilia that was you know key to writing certain parts of the book Uh, and she did not want to speak to me at first Um, I wouldn't say didn't want to but was very hesitant um, because she wasn't sure we were legit And that, you know, she wanted to entrust her story and the story of the L.A. Dandelions and the story of this league with um, the right person. And so, um, you know, I I emailed, I got her number um, and called, didn't hear anything back. A few of her teammates kind of um, spoke on my behalf to her. And um, eventually she responded to an email and we ended up just texting at first and she was feeling me out. And then um, we eventually had an initial phone call. And then after that, she just opened up and she became my biggest cheerleader. Um, and her just letting me into her world and into her memories. And it was such a privilege. It's, it remains a, a privilege. And um, I it was probably the most rewarding experience that I had an interaction with I had with a player when writing this book
0: okay so you kind of took it to a different time frame than I was the the Delorean question is meant to go way back like to the oh, moment okay. <laughs> well, I
2: thought you meant that's a you good... I, I thought you meant writing the book <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a good journey though to be able to like you said it was you had to build that relationship before you're able to truly Get the, the the connection and like the trust to be able to share this story with you. And I, I feel that in, okay, I have a day job and maybe someday we'll clink glasses with either one of you because my day job does cover Boston to Buffalo down to North Carolina. So who knows? Maybe in, down on the road, we'll be in the pub. But the question, now we're going to throw it to Brittany and you get to have the different type of question, DeLorean, you're going back to the actual seventies. What moment? Oh, going I know. To? I know.
1: Oh. I'm going to be at the 1976 championship game because it is disputed and i want to know whether or not the oklahoma city dolls kick was actually good because if it was they won the game and the footage has been lost so i'm going to the 1976 championship game between the oklahoma city dolls and the toledo troopers
0: oh there you go well with that then i mean i know we got to get you out of here Lindsay. first we'll kick it over to you where can the listener of the show find your book? What's the title of the book? And if they want to learn more about your work.
2: Well, it's Hail Mary, the Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. You can get it anywhere books are sold. The audio book is available now. You can get it on Kindle. Um, And I cover the WNBA and women's college basketball for The Athletic and also Just Women's Sports. You can find me at those two sites and um i'm on twitter at dark angel 21
0: all right Brittany, how about yourself
1: i write mostly um features on the intersection of sports and gender i'm a freelancer so you can find my work basically everywhere um at sports illustrated and lots of other different places um and you can find me on twitter or instagram at Brittany dlc
0: Alright, so before we kick you out again, any last words of wisdom for the listener of the show regarding the topic we just discussed.
2: Last words of wisdom. Support and invest in women's sports. <laughs> that's that's what I would leave people with.
0: There you go. Invest in women's sports. Pretty short, sweet, right to the point. Although we've made strides over the years, realistically. There's still a ways to go in many arenas. This just happens to be talking about sports and football. I think having, again, like I said at the beginning of the show, the intro, these open conversations, albeit uncomfortable, that's probably the best way to go about doing these things. So we can have these times where we're able to maybe understand someone that we haven't dealt with or these other types of things where when we're in the situation, we're like, huh, okay, I guess I put the foot on the other shoe and it's like, dang, that ain't cool. So let's get out there, find a topic you don't know enough about, find someone with more knowledge about it, and talk about it. Share stories, ideas, all these other kinds of things, so that maybe as we continue to go forward in this life, we can all have a better understanding. And I want to thank Brittany and Lindsay both for sharing with me and you, the listener, on this episode. And I hope that you get a chance to go out and get their book. If you're interested, you can go ahead and find a link right there on the show notes. And their book, again, is Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Go grab that book. Invest in women's sports in any way you can, even if it means just being aware of it and maybe watching. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the
2: first to get the next episode... Please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going,
1: we don't need roads.
0: Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network.